remain standing for the reading of God's word. We've been going through the book of Hebrews, but we're taking a break this morning to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. If you have a Bible or an app and you'd like to follow along, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28. But if you have been following along with us in Hebrews, we have been talking about the supremacy of Christ. Why he is better than any prophet or angel. Why he is better than even Moses and Abraham. And as we con- contemplate his resurrection this morning, we'll be reminded why that is true. This letter is to a group of believers in the city of Corinth, whom the Apostle Paul loves very much and yet knows they have lots of struggles. They need lots of gentle, but sometimes bold encouragement and redirection. And so he draws their attention again to the centrality of Christ in his resurrection. So let's likewise have our attention drawn to Christ's resurrection. I'll be reading verses 12 through 28. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The Corinthians were a very... Greek community in many ways and the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead and that that would mean that others would rise from the dead was difficult for them they saw the soul the inward part of man as something trapped in bodies that needed to be freed one day and so it seems that those here in Corinth are struggling with the idea that there will be a bodily physical resurrection of followers of Jesus one day Paul writes the letter to remind them that the resurrection of their bodies is central 
to the truth that they proclaim because of the risen Christ. Let's pray that we likewise would understand the centrality of Christ's resurrection together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, risen Son, active and living Spirit at work within us, would you be glorified in instructing us? Open our eyes to see Christ. Open our hearts and our minds and our bodies to see how we should respond as individuals and together. Help us to grow. Help us to obey. Would we do it together? And gracious God, I pray that what is seen right now, what is heard right now is not me, but your word for your people in this moment. We ask this, trusting in Christ. Amen. fortunate to have one of the mornings that does actually make it feel like spring in New England. The sun is shining. And though it's too early really to put much in the ground, some of you are probably thinking about your gardens, what you're going to be planting, what you hope to harvest. And some of the things that you might be thinking about is, well, what is likely to grow? Not everything grows in our short growing season here in New England, so we have to be wise. We have to think about our soil. We have to think about the amount of investment of time and energy, weeding and watering, looking to the harvest that we hope to have. All that work is in light of the harvest that we seek to have. Now, thinking about that garden and what you hope to grow, if you're into that, Let me ask this, where do you plan to get your seeds? Where do you plan to get the seeds? Where will the seeds for sowing come from? You're going to go to the local tractor supply store or the local nursery or even Walmart to purchase seeds. Maybe you have one of those fancy seed catalogs that come in the mail full of bright pictures of what you might grow or, you know, if you are an actual farmer, then you can go to a larger supplier for you to get seeds. But this is really not the way it's been for most of human history. For most of human history, the collecting of seeds to plant has been an act of deep sacrifice. Because the things that you are planting are things that you have reaped from before. You've had to save the seeds from the vegetables that you've eaten carefully and to preserve them until they're ready to plant. For many cultures who are are dependent primarily on bread as their primary sustenance, they would harvest the various grains and wheat and the like, and then they would have to make the decision in the spring, do we grind this up into bread for us, or do we preserve it that we might plant it for the future harvest? Psalm 126 uses the language of sowing with tears and reaping with joy. That's an illustration of the exile and the restoration, but it's also true for many because early spring is really the hungry time where the hard choices are made. What will we plant? Will it survive? And will there be a harvest? Our lives are then things that we are called to sow. With our lives, we invest with a hope for harvest. Our time, our energy, our finances, our attention is a sowing with some kind of harvest. 
Maybe it's the appreciation of others. Maybe it's a relationship, a family. Maybe it's success. What are we hoping will be the outcome of the way that we invest our lives? Paul says that central to the understanding of the Christian walk is the resurrection. He says, before the passage that we read, in, starting in verse 3, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He lays before them the centrality of the resurrection. And I don't have time to explain it, but those verses that I just read are some of the clearest proof, even for non-believing scholars, of how early the resurrection was proclaimed among Christians. Paul draws their attention to this because he says, without the resurrection, well, what does he say? Look at verse 19. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life also, because of no resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why would Christians, without a resurrection, be people to be pitied? Because we are called to live our lives like Christ. We are called to spend time expending ourselves upon those who cannot repay us. To spend time with the poor, the outcast. We are meant to live as servants. We are meant to love our enemies. We are meant to be generous with all that we have. We are meant even to lay down our lives. We are to be pitied if all of our life is sowing with no reaping. Is it worth it? What will the result of all of that sowing be? Will the rains come? Will the fields flood? What good is it to give our lives to follow Christ? We may be still waiting the final harvest, but Paul reminds us this morning that we have the first fruits. The first fruits are the first part of the harvest. They are the first grains, the first vegetables, the first things that sprout forth and show that all of that sowing, all of that weeding, all of that watering mattered because suddenly you have something tangible. And for the Old Testament people, they were supposed to take those first fruits and offer them to God because they acknowledged that it was God's faithfulness. And in offering those to God, they acknowledged that they could trust him to bring in the rest of the harvest. We are told here that Jesus' resurrection is our first fruits. For as in Adam all die, but also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus, according to verse 20, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. When we look at the resurrection of Jesus, when we consider his appearance, to the women and to the disciples and to the 500, we are seeing the first fruits of a harvest. The beginning of what we can expect to experience. We can count on our resurrection because Jesus' resurrection comes first. 
And as we look to his resurrection, we look forward to a harvest of forgiveness. We look to a harvest of new life, and we have the first fruits of a harvest of victorious restoration. In Christ, brothers and sisters, in the risen Christ now, we have first fruits of a harvest that is coming. First, a harvest of forgiveness. Now, this first harvest is described in the negative. Without the resurrection, Christians lose the goodness of the news that we are to profess. Verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. But then verse 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. It's stated in the negative. But if, as the passage says, if Christ has been raised from the dead, which he has, which is affirmed by eyewitnesses, then your sins are forgiven. Then you are no longer in your sins. Jesus told the woman in Luke chapter 7 who anointed his feet with oil, your sins are forgiven. When the young paralytic was brought by his friends in Mark chapter 2 to be healed, the first thing that Jesus said to that man is, your sins are forgiven. And when that man heard that, the crowd also heard that, and they began to murmur within their hearts because they knew and said to themselves, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus then healed the paralytic that they would know that he had the power to forgive. Jesus on the cross cried out, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. How was that prayer heard? We know God answers that prayer because Christ, who prayed that prayer from the cross, burst forth from the grave as confirmation that God hears the prayers of the great high priest he sent. We've been looking in Hebrews how Jesus offers sacrifice on our behalf for the sins of the people. He makes intercession, and it's only possible for him to intercede if he still lives. A dead priest is no good to a sinful people. What that means is that we are acceptable now. The Bible uses the language of justified. That means we are declared just, righteous, holy in the sight of God. Even now, if Jesus is risen from the dead, then we are no longer in our sins. We are removed from the category of sinful, from rebellious, from opposed to God, to the category of holy, acceptable, and righteous. We are told in Romans 8, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. If God accepts Jesus' sacrifice as acceptable by raising him from the dead, then we know our sins are forgiven. And it is a standing with God, but it is also a reality of power at work within us. Jesus, who conquered sin and death, now gives us the ability to not live under the slavery of sin, but to live with the power of the Spirit by which Christ was raised from the dead. Romans 6, 4 says this, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk 
in newness of life. Not only are we forgiven, but we have the power to live apart from sin because Jesus is resurrected. It also means that at the end of the world, what we often describe as judgment day when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, that our harvest will not be what we deserve. It will not be the wrath for the sinful deeds that we have sown, but instead we will have a harvest of acceptance and glory as we receive what is due for what Christ sowed, his perfect, holy, righteous life given for us. We are offering our lives, we are sowing seeds of obedience, service, and faith, not because our works will create a harvest of forgiveness, but because we trust in Jesus Christ, who has already risen and assures us of forgiveness from God. And assures us of the life that will flow from that forgiveness. See, Jesus is the first fruits of a harvest of forgiveness, but the first fruits also of a harvest of new life. As it stands right now, we live under the shadow of death. As if it is an unseen, unheard, but always present clock ticking down to the end. Death is the great inevitable. How are we to live with that knowledge? Some say death is the end. That that is all that there is and that is all that there can be. And so we are to live for the now. We are to try to beat that cl clock. And so we seek to sow for the quick harvest, invest for the quick return, try to make the easy money. Life is short, grab what you can. But that's actually a fairly new belief. For most of history and for most of humanity, they have leaned into the world as if there is something beyond death. Some sort of afterlife. Some si kind of continuance. Maybe it is being joined to the great oneness. Maybe it is walking with the ancestors. Maybe it is Elysium. But there has always been some sense of something after. As Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has also put eternity into man's heart. There is a sense that life isn't meant to end when we go into the grave. Yet what is the basis for that belief? And even if there is something after we breathe our last breath, what grounds can we have for hoping to experience and participate answer is here. Verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We are reminded that death is not the way that it's supposed to be. Death came in through the sin of Adam and Eve and has existed since then, but Christ comes to undo that. The earliest confession of Christians were based on a historically situated proclamation that Jesus rose from the dead. As I read from verses 3 to 7, he names names. And he mentions these names because the assumption is, if you want to go check this out, you can still talk to these people. 
who saw this man who died on the cross, was stabbed in the side, was laid in a garden tomb, only to have him appear fully alive for them to eat breakfast with them, for them to touch his wounds. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead in power and continues to live an indestructible life is the proof that there is more life to come. He is the first fruits of the eternal life that we can share in. Many of people who are not very familiar with Christianity may still have seen John 3.16 in the crowds at a football stadium or at a baseball stadium. That simple expression of the gospel, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Can we believe that? How can we know that we can have eternal life? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Romans 6, 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Earlier in Romans 6, 5, it says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If Christ had not been raised, then the brothers and sisters that had claimed Jesus, who were friends and family and kin to the Corinthian church, it meant that they had perished without hope. But Christians consider those who have died as those who are merely asleep. Jesus is described as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep because we consider them waiting to wake and arise again with the new morn of the new creation at Christ's return. Death may lay upon this life as a clouding mist, but when Christ comes again, the light shall shine, the fog of death shall evaporate with the breaking of dawn, the dead in Christ shall awake and rise. Since Jesus is the first fruits of our harvest of new life, then we can live now as he lived. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Jesus, who denied himself, who wandered without a home during his ministry, who was dependent on others, and take up his cross, take up a shameful death in my life-giving manner, and follow me. This week I looked up how much Jeff Bezos is worth. $180 billion. Just think of how much money that is. To spend all of that in a year one would have to spend $493 million a day. A day. And that's not accounting for the interest that is continuing to build upon all of that money. There aren't enough NFL, NLB, NBA, WNBA, NHL, and MLS teams to buy every day for a year. You can almost not spend all of that money it is too much to outspend. But we can count how much money Jeff Bezos has, $180 billion plus. In Christ, we are promised eternal life, uncountable life. 
We have a harvest of eternal, indestructible life. We can't spend too freely. We can't expend our life because it is hid with Christ. It is indestructible. And we have this guarantee of an inheritance that is indestructible, unfading, and guarded for us. We can love people who don't love us back. We can give financially to the poor and to the needy. We can speak out for the oppressed. Because the giving of our lives will never bankrupt us of the life that is available to us in Christ. That eternal life that we are promised in the resurrection of Christ is not just about quantity. It's not just about going on and on forever, but it's also about quality. We can sow our lives in faith because in Christ, his resurrection is the first fruits of a harvest of victorious restoration and renewal. Listen with me to verses 23 through 26. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Christ has risen from the dead as the first fruits, then those who are in Christ will rise. That's what it's saying. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What Paul is doing is speaking of the eternal kingdom established. Jesus has come as the promised Messiah, the promised king, to put everything in subjection to his feet, that he might offer it to God the Father at the last day. Jesus' resurrection now assures us of victorious restoration. First, because he is the one chosen to rule. Romans 1.4 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. We know Jesus is the chosen king, the rightful ruler, the powerful conqueror of all that is wrong. By virtue of his resurrection, God declares, this is the one. And second, his resurrection affirms that he is the one with the power to defeat everything that's wrong. Everything is to be subject to him. Everything. And then it goes on to say, the last enemy to be defeated is death. The last enemy to be defeated is death. When the new heavens and the new earth, when we experience resurrection, there will be no death. Because death is not the way it's supposed to be. But notice what that means. If death is the last enemy to be conquered, if at the renewal of all things death will cease, what does it mean that Jesus has already risen from the dead? It means there is no question whether death will be defeated. It means if, if, if you're playing a video game and, and each increasing level, the boss, gets harder, if your person has already if defeated the last boss, then you know you can make it through the whole game. He will overcome everything that is at war with God's glorious intent for his creation because he has already defeated death in himself. Brothers and sisters, we were made for glory. We were made to experience God. God made this world and declared that it was very good, but sin has infiltrated it. And so this world is, as some have called it, a glorious ruin, 
with great capacity for good, yet twisted throughout with evil. We have great technology for fighting pandemics, for developing vaccines that we have seen put into work over the last year. But that same technology can and has been at times been put to use to develop biological warfare to destroy life. We have the internet to share information, to proclaim the good news, to teach others, to reach people who would not otherwise have access to information, and yet the internet has been used for the objectification of women and the exploitation of children. Market forces that drive the ability to make enough food to feed the world, the development of that technology, the development of those processes, driven by the market that at the same time makes the, many of the rich richer and the poor poorer, leaving us always hungering for more. Brothers and sisters, there are forces beyond just our individual sin in our individual hearts. Verse 25 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He is to defeat every enemy. It lines up with what verse excuse me, verse 12 of Ephesians 6 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We battle against these day in and day out. And it always seems as if they have the victory in the end. We see it in addiction. We see it in abuse. We see it in corrupted governmental oppression. We see it in systemic poverty, in injustice, in racism, in war and famine. These are huge enemies fueled by spiritual opposition to God. And when we confront them, we begin to wonder, can we win? Can we win against such powers? How can we win when there is such corruption and twisting and evil so large compared to our power? His resurrection assures us that if we will trust in him, we will share in his victorious restoration, where we will walk with God, where we will no longer experience sickness, sadness, separation, or death. And that means that we can stand against those things now, clothed in the armor of Christ, the one who defeats every power opposed to God, and will surely bring us through to the end. Isaiah 43 says, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Romans eight thirty seven. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We shall have the victory. We shall enjoy the rule of God because Christ is risen from the dead. That's good news, brothers and sisters, because we live in an age that tells us we must conquer in order to matter. We must conquer our wealth. We must conquer our weight. We must conquer our workplace. We are told we will have peace and prosperity and value when we can rule ourselves and conquer our circumstances. And 
thus we live under constant condemnation for we fail to conquer all those things, don't we? This is the goodness of Jesus. This is the good news of Easter. That what you can't conquer, Christ has, does, and will conquer, and we know it because he rose from the dead. Our New England winters can be bleak, can't they? Barren trees, lots of brown. When we get the snow, it covers everything. And so when spring comes, it can be such a relief, right? The joy that swells at the first sighting of a robin's red breast. The purple of a crocus pushing through the half-frozen ground. They foretell of the greening of our lawns, the flowering of our gardens, and a rich harvest of beauty and life that comes with the warmer weather. May our hearts beat as fast. May our expectations be as heightened. May our eagerness for what is to come be all the stronger as we look to Christ. Would we commit our lives in faith to him so that the harvest of forgiveness, the harvest of eternal life, and the harvest of restoration of all things under God can be yours and can be mine. Jesus is the first fruits of an eternal harvest. Let us share in that bounty as we proclaim Christ crucified and risen victorious over the grave. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Jesus, you rose victorious. You are the first fruits, and we know that we can have a harvest. We can have bounty. We can have plenty. We can have security in you. Would we not be distracted or dissuaded from that good news? Help us not only to receive it, to trust it, to live within it, but help us to proclaim it to one another and those in desperate need who are hungering and thirsting for a better harvest. Hear our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen.